Good morning. Wow, that's loud. Well, I'm no stranger here. Some of you have faces that I half recognize, half that I can see. I was here back in the late 90s and preached. There used to be a pulpit right over there. I can still feel it hanging in the... So it's a new day and a new chance to be here. And Jimmy is the one student who I ever asked to come and teach courses for me when I was going away on vacation. So he has a special place in my life as well. So the sermon today we're calling Deep Connections, Vibrant Illuminations. Now most of you can't see this and I don't know if the, uh, the movie can, can hone in on this, but does anybody recognize this particular piece of rock? It's brown. Is there someone in the room who recognizes this? I see a hand back there. Who is that? It could be a brownie, but it'd be harder on your teeth, I suppose. But my wife is a retired dentist, so we can take care of that as well. So this, this rock was actually given to me by Jimmy McPherson probably a decade or so ago, and he may have even forgot that he gave it to me. Um, this particular piece is a, a part of a brick that came from the fireplace of C.S. Lewis's house, the Kilns, in Great Britain. And Jimmy picked this up and brought it to me because he knew of my love for C.S. Lewis. My love for C.S. Lewis came because of my love for Aslan. I read the Chronicles of Narnia growing up, and it was really through Aslan's presence that I came to understand the nature of Christ. And so to say that even beyond Aslan, to really get to Christ, this stone is a representative of going back to the cornerstone, the one who is, in fact, the foundation of my faith. At the end of the voyage of the Don Treader, as the children are about to be sent back from Narnia to our world, they're quite sad. And there's a passage that goes like this. It isn't Narnia, you know, sobbed Lucy. It's you. We shan't meet you there. And how can we live never meeting you? But you shall meet me, dear, dear one, said Aslan. Are, are you there too, sir, said Edmund? I am, said Aslan. But there I have another name. And you must learn to know me by that name. That was the very reason why you were brought to Narnia. That by knowing me here for a little, you may know me better there. Again, I want you to get the sense that a rock or a person brought to Narnia has these deeper stories, these deeper connections that are made, and that out of it comes a vibrant illumination, the possibility of relationship. So this isn't just a red rock. It's about me. It's about Jimmy. It's about Aslan, but ultimately it's about Jesus. 35 years ago, there was a friend who was visiting California, and she had just come home from a Hebrew class where they were translating texts outside of the Old Testament. She was rather excited that night, and it translated a passage that went something like this. At the center of the world is Israel. At the center of Israel is Jerusalem. At the center of Jerusalem is the temple. At the center of the temple is the Holy of Holies. At the center of the Holy of Holies is the Ark of the Covenant. And beneath the Ark is a stone. And that is the cornerstone. 
She was with a bunch of Jewish-speaking people, but she knew what that was referring to because she had read Ephesians 2.20. We just sang about Christ, the cornerstone. 1 Peter 2.6 also mentions this deeper sense. She had a deeper connection because she knew what that stone meant, that it was at the center of all those things. And it had a vibrant illumination for her that even deep within the Jewish faith, within the whole preparation for the coming, all of it was represented with this centering in on the nature of who Jesus is. As we look at our passage in Galatians, we're going to find there are similar deep connections that are waiting for vibrant illuminations. So Paul begins, brothers and sisters, I give an example from daily life. Once a person's will has been ratified, no one adds or annuls to it. This is about permanence. When you set a will, which we've been doing quite recently, so we know about these things, um, it becomes permanent. You can't change it. The person himself can change it, but once it's set, it becomes permanent. There's no going back on the intention of the creator. So the promises that were made to Abraham and to his offspring, and that doesn't say to offsprings, as those, there's a bunch of them, this promise to Abraham, through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That's God's promise through Abraham, and it's not to a bunch, but of, of one, it says, to your offspring, singular, that is to one person who is Christ. So all the way back to Abraham to see that the blessing that's even there has this deeper connection that is to be made later in life. And Paul wants to just get that down really clear, what this is all about. The promise to Abraham was permanent. All will be blessed as a result of that, but ultimately in Christ. So he goes on to say, my point is this, the law, which came 430 years later, so we've got Abraham, 430 years later, Moses. So that 430 years, does this permanent promise that's made here, this covenant between God and Abraham, does it get changed at all by virtue of what it is that happens with Moses? Because it's really easy to think that all of the things that Moses gave in the law become conditions by being accepted to God. And Jimmy's been talking about belonging and all the ways that people mess up on what it looks like to belong to God by virtue of what God does. And that point is being brought into focus again. So, this does not, what came later, does not annul the covenant previously ratified by God. If the inheritance comes through the law, if we get what we are supposed to get because we fulfill the law, if you think it nullifies the law, then this is no longer a promise. And what God has promised and granted through Abraham is set aside. So, two covenants. The first one, Abraham. The second one, a covenant. And with this covenant, you get in Exodus 20 what we call the Ten Commandments. So we need to dis distinguish here from um, the difference between a covenant and a contract. Now, some of you deal in contract-type things. If you're in business, contracts become part of what's there. So a contract, I want to suggest, is always conditional. If you do this, then this will happen. And if you don't do this, that will happen. Hence, it's based in fear. I'm afraid something might go wrong, so we need to make sure we have in writing what it is that's required so that everybody is whole in the end. So this becomes something like a legal form of law. There's another form of law that's not legal, but to say that the nature of the way we think in the modern world is a legal form of law. Even what we call covenant communities, say what time you can park your car in the driveway, what color your house can be, how loud the dog can bark. All of those things are set out as 
though it's a covenant, but I want to say that's just a contract. The nature of a covenant is it's unconditional, no conditions. It's love-based because of love for another, one makes a covenant with that person. And it's a call to the fulfillment of a relationship with that person. In the movie Schindler's List, if any of you saw that, the list is a list of people who Schindler buys who are on their way to the oven, Jews on their way to the oven, he buys them to take them to his country so they can work in his factories. The German soldier who's there says, what are you, some kind of modern day Moses? Because he's doing, in a sense, this unconditional covenant. These people have, they can beg no conditions. Well, we'll go if you'll do this or anything like that. It's just, here's life, take it or leave it, unconditional. He offers it unconditionally and they have to accept it unconditionally. Covenants are unconditional offerings of love, accept or die. If you go and get married, which I have, and you have a bunch of conditions there, I'll marry you if you will make me dinners every night, do the laundry, all those things. The person opposite you is likely to say, what? <laughs> because the nature of it is an unconditional affirmation of love to live, cherish, and abide with this person for the rest of your life. When you come home from the honeymoon, there's hopefully another conversation. And when I do therapy with people, I have a lot of these kind of conversations. And it's like something like this. Because I love you, let's talk about who's going to mow the lawn, who's going to do the bills, who's going to make dinner, who's going to clean up, how we can get patterns of working together. And again, this isn't a contract. It's just the working out of love in the relationship. Because we love and care about one another, we articulate those things so that we're expressing it in the very practice of everyday life. That's covenant. That's working out. That's acting as though what it is that you have done in the, on the wedding day works through everything. So in the Ten Commandments, which are also called the Decalogue, the Ten Words, the question is, what is God's first word? What is the first commandment? Now, generally speaking, not only Protestants, but Christians generally think that you shall have no other gods before me is the first commandment. But for the Jews, they have another first word. For them, the first word is, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of slavery. The first word is an unconditional statement of God's acting so that these people will belong to him. It's an unconditional covenant that God has already done and affirmed to them as this first word, as though it is God's unilateral act that shapes everything that follows. And so I, they suggest, and I want to suggest, suggest too, everything that follows from that, of what we call the law, they're simply the outworking of love. So having no other gods is saying simply, if I've covenanted with you, then simply stay with me. Don't go after other gods. The nature of take my name, don't take my name in vain. When you get married and take another person's name, you, you then say you'll be that kind of person. If you call yourself a Christian or if you call yourself a Jew, in the case of the Jews, if you call yourself and then don't act like it, that's called being a hypocrite. Right? So to be faithful to the person is to live out the love that shows that you are who you are in loving relationship to that person. Remember the Sabbath means take time with me. Don't be violating the time that we set aside for one another. Honor your parents. Be grateful to the gift that I give you of parents. Honor and cherish them. Take care of them. And everything else that goes on from there are just the ways of acting like we are those who have been loved 
and now love one another. So the purpose of the law under Moses was simply to live out love as the consequence of the promise of having been loved by God unconditionally. And God reaffirms that promise to love us unconditionally there with Moses on the mountain in his ski chalet. I'm just seeing if you're awake there. So this is all about a responsive life to live within the limits of love, never a condition that God sets on us. And that's what Paul's getting at. No conditions can be added. Why then the law? It was added because of the transgressions, because we do go astray until the offspring would come who made, to whom the promise has been made, and it was ordained through angels by a mediator, and the mediator involves more than one party, but God is one. Jesus comes as the one who is both God and also the one who fulfills our humanity. He stands in as the unconditional covenant of God with humanity, all caught up in himself. Jesus is the mediator between heaven and earth. He is the deep connection who brings the vibrant illumination of who God is and who we are and the nature of what it means to live together. Paul asks then, is the law then opposed to the promises of God? Does it do anything to oppose what was set up? Certainly not. For if a law had been given, see this is against me, so I just set it aside like the law. So that if the law had been given to make one alive, then righteousness would indeed have come through the law, made right through obeying the, obeying the conditional statements. But the scripture has imprisoned us or bound us in all things so that we live within the promise that came through faith in Christ, or as Jimmy's pointed out, through the faithfulness of Christ, the promise that came through the faithfulness of Christ. That's what we've been waiting for all along, given to those who believe. What do we believe? We believe in Christ's faithfulness we have a response. The promise is fulfilled in Jesus' faithfulness, and we have faith or a response to his faithful way of being. Now, before faith came, we were imprisoned and guarded until faith would be revealed. So there was something that was kept waiting ever since Moses that was looking forward to the same thing that was pointed out with Abraham. Faith kept us focused on the deeper connection that we were waiting for, as he says in verse 26, for in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. So the deeper illumination that comes here is that ultimately because of the faithfulness of Christ, we're all called the children of God. Because we're good? Because we never mess up? Absolutely not. It's because of his promise, his declaration, his fulfillment, his faithfulness that we are called the children of God. And as many as you were baptized into Christ, you have clothed yourself with Christ. To be clothed with Christ is to be clothed with his faithfulness, the one in whom we have faith. What happens because of all this? The walls start to crumble, and you have little bits of concrete and bricks. There is no longer Jew or Greek, no longer slave or free. There is no longer male or female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. You're getting the promise that's been made all along. So what happens here? In this deep connection, in this illumination, all ethnic divisions are no longer allowed to divide us. Jew and Greek. Ethnic divisions. Sorry, if, you're, if you have a different ethnic division, Jesus can't see those to separate you out into different groups. No economic divisions. 
In this case, it's slave and free. Those are the two divisions of economic ways of being. No longer can you hold any way of being economically present in the world different. Those are all taken away in Christ. You're all valued as his children. And gender, male and female, you are not seen as in any way having a difference in value. You are the beloved children of God. All of those walls, all of those divisions are broken down. The promise has been fulfilled. And all the families of the earth is what was said to Abraham will be blessed through you. In what way? That we can actually be family. And is this about Abraham being particularly good? Nope. He just had faith in the God who does all these things. Faith that God is the one who makes the promise and brings it to fulfillment. So the vision here is of a new humanity because of who Christ is. A new humanity without division. And it was all fulfilled in Christ, who is the seed who fulfills it all, who brings to fulfillment what it means to be the people of God, the family of God, the children of God, which is who you are. Which Jimmy used my Father Abraham song. I was going to use that, but I think I should have everybody stand up and sing it. Because people sing it all the time. You know, I am one of them and so are you. But I don't think we stop and think about the deep connection that's being made there. And the vibrant illumination to say, this is my family. Those promises, those are for me. This is me I'm singing about because of what happened way back with Abraham. As Lewis talks about deep magic from before the dawn of time that Christ has now brought into fulfillment. Now, while I was waiting for my doctor to be fulfilled, I worked as a substitute custodian in the North Shore School District. One evening, I was working, cleaning a library, and I started talking to the librarian there. She told me she had worked in a Christian college in the Seattle area, a school that no longer existed. And I said, why did you leave being a librarian? She said, you know, I used to be a conservative until I discovered I didn't want to conserve the things that those conservatives wanted to conserve. And I also didn't want to be a liberal because I didn't want to change the things that those people wanted to, to change. And as I went away that night, I just thought, you know, we are all conservatives and liberals. We all have things we'd like to keep the same. And we all have things that we would like to see different. But it led me to say, you know, the nature of where we stand in relation to others is probably not the best place to stand. There is this place of aligning our hearts with the heart of Jesus where we want to conserve what he wants to conserve. But it means going back to him, to the deep connection that's there. And there's a sense that the things that he wants to change, like breaking down walls, that we want to stand with him and be those who love the way he does. That we need to be attuned to his father's heart because he came to bring his father's heart into the world so that his actions would be fulfilled in a way and that the spirit, even today, gives us ears to hear the heart of the father and the voice of the son so that we once again discover the cornerstone of our faith and that we are children called to be in this family. Now, behind me, there's a stained glass window. There it is. So, what would be lost if, if all of those pieces of glass up there were the same? If they were all just one color, one intensity? If we didn't have dark and light, small and large, blue, yellow, green, a bit of red. I, was, I wore red today to tie in with the red parts up there. 
a little bit of Pentecost Sunday out of, out of place, but that's okay. And the question, you know, which piece do you identify with? And maybe every Sunday you might come and see yourself identifying with a different piece. But the really deep question here is, you know, what is it that really makes a stained glass window work? Is it the glass itself that makes it work? I want to suggest it's the light that shines through it. And the diversity of kinds of colors and shapes and all that is what, it, what makes it possible for the light of Christ to shine through and to bring each part into relation with the others with all of its distinctiveness and its value. And to lose those things at some level is to lose the very thing that stained glass windows and the person of Jesus are all about doing and that Paul is talking about in this passage. And that is to make these very many diverse parts all be brought into focus, to be brought into their right way of being because of the light of Christ that shines through them. So he shines through us. He's shining through you right now. It's so easy to think that Jesus is far away, but he is here now in this place. And he's aligning our hearts with his heart, with his father's heart, to know the nature of what love looks like, to maybe think of family members, neighbors, the people who you'll meet later today, and to think, what does it look like for the light of Christ to shine through for them? What does it look like to have our ears attuned by the Spirit to hear the voice of Jesus? That's all the light of Christ that comes in and through. T.F. Torrance says that the nature of the Holy Spirit, just like the light in the spring allows the growth of the plants that are there, the warmth and the light is what allows that growth to happen. So the spirit in our life, that light shining, is what allows for the growth to happen in our life. Jesus is permanently, just like the promise to Abraham, permanently present to be that light that shines through us. This window is, in a sense, an icon. And I hope every Sunday from now on, you look up and you think, Christ is shining in this room. And I am part of that window, and today I'm blue, and another day, maybe you're red. But to just to recognize that whatever place you may be in, Christ shines through you, and it's about what that shining through does that makes the difference. His faithfulness brings out the deep connection so that the colors come to fruition. Now this week, I, my mom is turning 93, and so I took her to the the Kubota Gardens Friday. And as we went around, she talked about her life and the nature of what it meant to bring music to people. My mom still goes and visits a younger woman who can't drive to take her food. She's 93. She's the one that goes and visits. Um, she, she has gone to nursing homes. Um, she used to sing in the, in the University Presbyterian Church Choir. Music for her has been a place that Christ has shown through her. It's not just the moments, though. It's, it's the character of who she is as somebody who simply says, I don't know all the theology and I don't know all that, that religion stuff. I just want to show up as somebody who brings that love to people. And I thought, there it is. There's the light that shines through. There's the cornerstone that finds its own expression. We all belong, just like that window. We all are blessed from Abraham. We are all fulfilled in Christ. For this week, the thought for you is just to tell your story. You are a piece of rock that's a story that's waiting to be told. And unless you tell the story that I think will lead back to Christ, then for you, you might just look like a piece of rock to them because they don't know the story embedded, the hope, the 
cornerstone that lies beneath your story, that just telling who you are to people and your love for them is that placing yourself so that the light of Christ shines through you. Let's pray.